tuned into the Vell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. It is a cold, dreary day in Boulder, Colorado. Looking out the window at snow. Oh, God. Yummy. I like it. Yeah, it's winter, can't finally. can't ride your bike in the snow, Chris Casey. I am joined by Spencer Paulison and Chris Case, who rode his bike in today. Yeah, but Chris, it's like 4 p.m. and you're just now thawing out. Mm, I haven't actually thought out at all yet. Did you take a nice warm shower and get uh, get stingy hands and feet? <laughs> yeah, but the feeling That's... of superiority, I think, makes it all worthwhile. That's true. Very true. Uh, we have lots of bike stories to get to. Um, Spencer, you and I had pretty fun bike weekends. I was out at the rally team's launch. Southern California went on a ride with sponsors and stuff like that. It was hobnobbing. so warm. Did some hobnobbing. Nice. And you were at a bike launch or something in Arizona? What was going on down there? That's right. We were checking out some some of the gravel riding around Scottsdale of all places. You wouldn't uh, think that that's a real mecca for gravel riding, but it actually is great. Lots of trails, good ro- good roads. Checked out a new uh, Lauf gravel bike with that mm. wacky uh, leaf spring fork and some other interesting stuff. Dirty Kanza champ. Yuri Hoswald was there, rode with him a bit. He's always fun to hang out with. Did you find any cactus? I found a lot of cactus. Fortunately, I did not touch it because you don't want to. You don't want to mess with those prickly guys. Yeah, the eighty uh, percent rule for these bike tech trips, which is that you only ride up to eighty percent of your abilities, or you will risk crashing. Mm. I think would definitely come into play. Like when there's that much yucca 60% around. Sixty percent with all the yucca. I'd yeah, say. yucca, yucca. Actually, yucca. you know, it's it's more the choya that you got to watch choya. out for. Those things. Ooh, mm. scary. Yeah. We'll be pulling that out. Good to be back to the snow. Well, we have a lot of different topics to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Tia Down Enda, which yeah, wrapped up this weekend with Daryl Impey. <laughs> Impey is more Impey yeah, won, than, uh... but he was tied on GC with Richie Port. Again, the most snake-bitten snake cyclist in all of pro cycling. Richie Port won the stage to El Duelanga, but was tied on GC. I have to wonder, could he have gotten one second out of that effort somewhere? I mean, he's he showboating at the line. Oh, showboating, yeah. putting his arms up. Jeez, can't Probably do lost that. lost at least a second putting the arms mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You talk about wind resistance, hey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then we have to talk about, there was a World Cup round of the Cyclocross World Cup in Nome, France, and our, our compatriot, Katie Compton, Took the big W. Yay, America. Katie Keogh coming close in second yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Great weekend for American women uh, because also there was there was action in the World Cup of track with the pursuit team yep. the headed by team one. Chloe Daggard Owen. They won there as well. So a little less muddy. Great weekend to be an American. And before we get to all that though, we need to talk about Chris Froome and the ongoing saga with the adverse analytical for Salbutamol because there have been a couple little wrinkles in the story in the last week or so. Nothing groundbreaking, nothing new, but enough news and time has passed for us to revisit this topic. Plus, I wrote a column about it and like a bunch of people yelled at me on Twitter. <laughs> and I always just think that's fun. It is fun. It is it's fun for everyone. Swimming honestly. in your mentions. Hey, join the conversation. Join the conversation. Yeah. Swim in my munch- mentions. Nigel, tell me I'm an idiot. Yeah, from Tottingham. Yeah, I think there was a lot of Nigel from Tottingham who has been <laughs> out of shape with this column. Let's get into it, guys. With the Chris Froome and the adverse analytical saga, a couple of things have been happening in the last week. The first is that um, important people have been making comments about the saga. Here we are a month into the fact that we now know that, you know, Chris Froome tested adverse analytically for Subutamol at the Vuelta, and nothing has really moved since then. And so the sport is getting 
anxious and antsy and people are starting to make comments. We have the most recent of whom is our, our good friend, David Lapartian, who basically said... UCI president. UCI president, that, that Sky should suspend Froome, that this has gotten to a, a ridiculous point. And in order to save cycling, Sky should suspend Froome. Mm-hmm. Lapartian's really been on a tear lately. He, yeah. he had that moment. And then also he... Uh, called out Tour of Flanders for inviting Lance Armstrong mm-hmm. to be a guest speaker. Man of speaker. words, man of words. So uh, he's, he's, he's coming in swinging in 2018. <laughs> and sidebar here, I think we need some sort of like intro theme song for each update to the Chris Froome saga, kind of like a little bit of a, Ooh, maybe you know, like, like a Netflix drama where you, you know start binge watching it uh-huh. and you get that Pavlov's reaction to the intro <laughs> tune. We need some kind of, maybe a little Something dark. Something British. Oh, yeah. Could be like uh, Sex Pistols or something. Maybe. Well, what I was thinking was maybe the Law & Order, dun-dun. Yeah, Ooh. that would be the easy way. I, I, I think that would be fine for uh, for the time being, but well, that's With a gavel more creative. Strike. Yep. Anyway. So the dun-dun, Lepartian continues, I saw one newspaper from Brittany, and the first page was Froome, and this wasn't a sports newspaper, and that was the same in many countries. It's bad for cycling, but as I've said, we also got to be careful because Froome has the opportunity to defend his position. So kind of a uh, wishy-washy He's really well-read. He's, he's, you know... He's reading the papers. <laughs> deep research on the matter. But he brings up a good point, which is that, God, a lot, you know, a lot of time has passed and nothing has happened, and, and, and people are continuing to talk about this. And that gets me to the next little wrinkle that came out, which was that last week, uh, French newspaper Le Monde, uh, French newspaper Le Keep... Close enough. Um, ...had a report that said that Froome and Sky were contemplating a legal defense or testing the waters with a legal defense that revolved around the topic that Froome was experiencing kidney problems during the Vuelta España and that these kidney problems may be to blame for the high concentration of salbutamol in his urine, basically that his kidneys like stopped processing the substance for a while and then started up again and released this huge concentration. Now, we have heard through our connections and our various journalistic relationships that- Little that, birdies. Little birdies, that Sky are now shooting this down and saying, no, 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 we are not testing this. We are not going to do this defense. Um, but that ca- that happened like a day afterwards. And, and for a day there, <laughs> I think that the general consensus from the cycling world was, this is kind of a bullshit uh, he had a winner defense. going there. Yeah, he, amongst the list of best excuses, yeah. he had a he had a winner. There's a lot of good doping excuses from from the annals of cycling history. Well, and that's the thing is that like I don't know to me anyway. This seemed like wow, they're going for the long ball defense. And Chris, you and I, we spent a couple days reading some of them. Um, what are what were some of your favorites? I mean, I think the the vanishing twin has to be amongst an all time great uh, Tyler Hamilton's fence that he was. Uh, a twin in utero, and uh, that vanishing twin uh, supplied an, that extra DNA in his in his blood sample. Yeah, it happened but, to Dwight Schrute in the office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pigeon pie. Let's talk about some pigeon pie. Yeah, that's Adrie Vanderpool. Adrie Vanderpool, his father-in-law, supposedly raced pigeons, and strychnine was a performance enhancer at that time, or it was thought to be. Um, that's what Adrie tested positive for. That's what the pigeons were on, apparently. And, and Adri, you know, he, he indulged. He had a little pigeon pie one day and uh, tested positive. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's a disgusting excuse. I think the grossest part of that excuse is like admitting you're like, yeah, dude, I eat pigeon. Yeah, it's Belgium. Come on. <laughs> you don't eat pigeon? All seriousness, though, all joking aside, I would imagine that they're not going to go forward with a defense like this. And my general takeaway was that floating this story, this story may have been a testing the waters mm. type thing mm. uh, to see if people... Um, how how the general public responded to this. And, and that leads to a bigger point, which is that in the absence of concrete facts and the absence of news coming out around Froome, the cycling world is left to speculate about what is going on. Um, this includes fans and this includes journalists. You know, we can talk to our sources, we can quote people from around the sport saying how they feel about it, but until new things comes out or until the, the team or Froome makes comments about these things, we're, we're left in this limbo land. And, you know, I was hearing some discussion earlier about the Froome case, and these journalists were talking about, this was on a podcast, they were saying, well, it's not healthy to speculate. We need to let the sport and due process run its course before we come to any conclusions or speculations about um, this case. and But that's the question. What is due process in this case? Yeah. What, or what are we waiting for? Yeah. When is it going to happen? What is the next step here? And an A and a B sample is, that's pretty far along as far as due process is concerned. Right. And so with without a real firm guideline of what due process is going to look like, I think it's fine to speculate. I mean, these are the conversations that cycling fans are having anyway. And I think these are the conversations that journalists are having anyway. Um, so I wrote a column that was um, in line with this level of speculation, which I talked to many of the sports doctors who we've quoted on our website in the past few months about the Froome case. These are experts in the world of salbutamol, of anti-doping, of drug testing, et cetera, and posed them with the question, like, what, what's the most logical explanation here? What is the Occam's razor in this scenario? Um, which that general theory is that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. The one that requires the fewest leaps of faith and the fewest steps and sort of suspending disbelief. And, and they, they mail you new razors every month too. It's yeah, nice. Yeah, it's the Occam out. Razor Club. Yeah. So the Occam Razor Club consensus was basically that he had taken a pill or he had used a nebulizer. He had, he had not used the puffer. The puffer is legal and the pill and the um, nebulizer are both illegal methods. So the general consensus was they took that chance. They took a chance. The way that you you have twice the legal limit amount of subutamol in your urine is through these hyper-concentrated um, methods, and those methods are banned. And I wrote that it is... In, you can create a narrative around this that does make some sense. You know, we've heard from our reporters and from other reporters that Froome was definitely sick in this second and third week of the Welta. He had a head cold. He was coughing and sniffling and sounded like crap in the press conferences. And um, there were reports that his teammates may have been saying that he was like coughing up at, you know, up at night coughing. And I can only speak from my own perspective as an asthmatic. Uh, I know that when I get a head cold, it always ends up in my lungs and it triggers my asthma and I have to take my inhaler or my uh, my nebulizer because that delivers a bigger dose. And, you know, I can see a, I can see a speculative scenario. I'm not saying it's right. None of this is saying it's right. In which, in order to continue on with the Welta, there was a decision made to give him a bigger dose, you know? 
Maybe you could wash it out of the system. Maybe you could use your political relationships in the sport to make it go away. I don't know. But that was the, what, what came back from these people. And so, I don't know. Are you guys ready to, like, stab me in the head because I'm speculating about the Chris Froome case? <laughs> oh, you've made me spill my tea. No, no. I mean, I, it, for me, it still goes back to the fact that this is a global sport and there's just a lack of clarity on a situation like this. It's not the first time they've dealt with this situation, yet we don't have a roadmap of what happens next. And it's just so vague and confusing that, yeah, we sit around trying to come up with um, answers as to what might be going on because nobody's talking. Yep. Nobody in the position to of power that could deliver some clarity on the on the matter does which is frustrating. Well, you know who is not talking, but who is writing? <laughs> a lot of writing. is Chris Froome himself. So we did some Strava research here. Stalking. <coughs> Strava stalking. <laughs> and Chris Froome is putting in big, big mega miles over the last couple of weeks. I'm on a Strava page right now. Live stalking. A lot of stalking from the week of January 7th through January, well, January 1st through 7th, 672 miles. Oh, that's a big week. That's a big week, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next week, it was, oh, a real small week, 575.2. He's got a lot of time on his hands. Apparently. And the week after that, 584. So, I mean, he's training, you know? It seems to, it doesn't seem like he's uh, waiting around for the sport to figure this oh, out. No. Chris, Definitely not. Chris Froome is is getting ready, and so other. Um, I had heard some speculative chatter uh, uh, on the cycling podcast about this. Was that someone had speculated? Well, maybe he is preparing for the pharmacokinetic study by putting in these huge hot miles to try and simulate what's going on at the Vuelta España, and uh, he's going to like I don't know. He every day on one of these test rides, he's like hitting the puffer, <laughs> hiring a bunch of Spanish guys to come attack him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't see anyone riding with him. If you are riding with Chris Froome in South Africa right now, webletters at competitorgroup.com, please reach out because we would love to know yeah. what that experience is like because I come, imagine it's got to be painful. Come on the show to discuss. If, if, he's, if he's actually trying to replicate the conditions of the Vuelta and he's done three big blocks of three big weeks of training, then I guess the pharmacokinetic study is right around the corner and we should all... Stop speculating soon because we'll have our answer. <laughs> yep. Or maybe this is just the normal type of base miles that he's yeah. doing. I would imagine that's probably it. But yeah, Chris Froome, he's he's getting ready, guys. Full I mean, ahead. he he is training like someone who is preparing for a big season of cycling. And a lot of these rides look really hard. Ouch. Moving on, guys. We're going to keep our eyes on this Froome thing. Again, it's the story of 2018, so... No answers today. Sorry, I wish we had some for you. Uh, but we do have cyclocross answers. And the question of who's the fastest racer at the Nomea World Cup, Katie F. and Compton. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't watch this race. Who watched this? We I did. did. Yeah. Yeah. I, we both did. Why yeah. didn't you, Fred? Come on, Fred. Good excuse yeah. or no? No. I was in, skiing? Yeah, I was in Rally? LAX. No, oh, I was coming back right. from LA. Rally. That's right. Rally camp. So what happened? Fill me in. It was a, it was a very muddy race, as you expect this time of the year. Uh, Katie actually had a pretty strong start, which isn't quite her usual way 
she's often kind of a conservative starter, works her way through the pack as the race develops. But uh, pretty early on, she was right toward the front. And I think in part, her win was aided by the fact that there was a bit of a tangle uh, on the first lap. One of the, one of the sweeping corners, a few riders went down, a few riders got kind of hung up for a little while there. And uh, furthermore, uh, world champion Sana Kant had some trouble with the drop chain early in the race, and that essentially knocked her out of contention. All that being said, I mean, Katie rode an uh, amazing race, pulled Indeed, away, yeah. uh, must have been close to a minute her, her gap by the yeah. end of the race. It was, o- I think, over, 55 you know, seconds, yeah. Katie Keogh, who also had a, a, an awesome race, didn't fade as she's done it in a, on a few occasions in the past, had a very consistent race, came through the field, picked off rider one by one by one, and uh, ended up second. So it was a really, really good day for the Americans. Yeah, they were both riding alone, and both were able to really pace themselves well. It's exciting, I think, uh, looking ahead to, to, to Cyclocross World Championships in about two weeks, we should feel pretty confident that uh, one of these Americans, and potentially Ellen Noble as well, be in the hunt for a good result, potentially a podium. Uh, we do have one more World Cup coming up the weekend prior to to, to Worlds, which yep. is going to be in Hoogerheide, the traditional final World Cup before World Championships. But um, yeah, I, you know, I've, I had talked a little with Compton at uh, National Championships about a few different things, partly about Worlds, and she pointed out that the course of Worlds is a is sort of a mountain bike style course, a lot of sh- a lot of steep hills there in the Netherlands, and it uh, it could favor perhaps a, a smaller rider like Keo, who's uh, Compton will be the first to tell you that Keo's one of the better climbers in the in the women's cross field. Uh, technically as well, Ellen Noble could be favored due to just the fact that she likes to just shred the downhills, has no no trouble at all riding stuff that some women would run or hop in barriers, anything like that really. But uh, yeah, Compton clearly on excellent form though. I, she's actually I, I looked at her results. This is her third win in a row, and so mm. this national championships the weekend before and then uh race that closed out her christmas period in um and think in, about in europe think about how much she traveled to to win those right. three races yeah. too yeah from two, europe to reno and back again yeah. two two transcontinental trips that's so impressive she's uh she's looking good well, this is always the like tough part about mm, the end the late part <laughs> of the cross season which is Katie Compton a lot of times is looking really strong in those nationals races and then the final few World Cups. And then it's like the bad luck fairy, I know, comes into world. So we're not even going to mention it. Stop it. We're going to hope for the the good luck fairy to visit Katie Compton. The good luck fairy is is arriving in Valkenburg as we speak. uh, So what about the men's race? This was another Vanderpool Dominant victory, but it sounds like this one was hey, even took a little detour. <laughs> it sounds like this one was even more dominant for kind of hilarious reasons. Yeah, Vanderpool is such a such a funny rider to watch race because he can t- he knows how strong he is relative to the rest of these guys, and he approaches these races with somewhat of a casual mentality where <laughs> he'll like he'll ride past his his pit crew in the pits to get a bike exchange and then just stop and Oops. just kind of stroll back and get a new bike, losing about five spots in the process so nonchalant. not concerned at all though just runs back up to the front passes everybody uh yeah for a little while there i thought there was a decent battle going between venner and, and vanderpool venner mm-hmm. was riding some of the things that uh, mm-hmm. vanderpool was running i thought it was 
it was pretty short lived. Yeah, but, but, first half of the race essentially. Yeah, yeah. So wait, what did Vanderpool do in this Nome race? He was riding. He, he with, went into the pits. Yeah, he was on the wrong side of Tunarts at the time when he went past his pit. I don't even think he realized it. There was a little bit of argy bargy between the two of those riders, and then all of a sudden, I think the light went off. Vanderpool just locked it up front and back. Gets off his bike, turns around, casually strolls towards his pit. His pit crew brings him a bike. He gets on it. Off he goes. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I mean, he has really attained Sagan levels of confidence. It reminds me of that Sagan, I would agree, yeah. Where he can kind of do whatever he wants and still expect to win. So obviously he's the huge favorite to win the world uh, championships. But, um, yeah, when someone... Yeah, at home, too. At home. That would be massive for him. When someone gets to that level of dominance in the sport, it's time to find a bigger pond to swim in. Yeah. That's my opinion on that matter. Um, all right. Well, we have another World Cup round this coming weekend. So good luck, Katie. And, uh, Katie, too. Good luck to Katie. both. Good luck, Katie's. both Katie's. And for Matthew, you don't need our luck. <laughs> You're good enough. Oh, didn't he like endo, too? Didn't he uh, do, mm. a, do a front crash? I did not see this. Yeah, maybe if he did. Another- Potentially, a you were thinking race. about the Spencer's crash at the ditch at Nationals, weren't you? Yeah, Spencer made it look good. <laughs> I didn't crash at the ditch. I'm joking. <laughs> That's somebody else. Okay, guys, let's get to my chat uh, with Andy Hood about the Tour Down Under. All right, welcome back to the podcast, Fred Dreyer, and I am joined through the internet. By Andrew Hood. Andrew Hoodie, you are back in Spain after like, what, 35 hours of travel back from Australia. Uh, do you even know what time it is right now? <laughs> That's right, Fred. It was, it's, a, it's a long trip down to Australia. I mean, long 13-hour flight through Dubai, another eight hours back to Europe. I, I didn't know what day it was yesterday. I'm, I'm kind of back on my feet back again today. So, And are you still sunburned and sweaty? I mean, that's the big story coming out, the fact that it was 100 degrees every single day down there. Are you showing off your tan to your Spanish neighbors and, and bragging about your time? Yeah, when I went down to the bar this morning for my coffee, my local bar I go to, everybody's like, oh, <laughs> Hoodie, you're so tan. But actually, I tell you what, down there in Australia, they really have the awareness up about the sun and skin cancer. And everybody, and all the locals, are wearing long sleeves during this heat. They're wearing those big Aussie crocodile Dundee hats. They have like free canisters of sunscreen everywhere. They just have literally just standing on street corners sometimes have these big jugs of sunscreen so that people can cover themselves up because it's i tell you what man you can really notice the sun when between the the shade and the sun it is a dramatic difference especially in january when you're probably accustomed to being uh freezing cold well let's get into it you were down at the tour down under that race wrapped up this past weekend uh a bit of a surprise winner in daryl impey but there's a lot of different stories that come out of this race every year it's the first race of the year Guys are on varying levels of form, and this year was really special because it, it was, what, the 20th anniversary? What, what were people talking about with the, the whole fact that this was 20 years of the Tour Down Under? Yeah, it, it was a big milestone for the race. It's really grown to be the largest and most important stage race in Australia. The fact that it got on the World Tour a few years ago was very important to the organizers because now they can you know draw in 
writers like uh, Sagan uh, and bring in these big world tour teams. You know, there was talk uh, a year ago of trying to get Froome down there this year, but Froome was kind of uh, insisting on making the race harder. Every year they have two passages up this old Wilunga road climb, and Froome wanted to have four climbs up Wilunga to make it hard enough for him to even consider coming. So that didn't pan out. But maybe it was a blessing in disguise they didn't have Froome coming to the race after all. But, you know, you had Sagan. You had a great sprint battle with Greipel, uh, Viviani, Caleb Ewan. So it was a good week. I mean, it's, it's a great race because there's huge crowds, good weather, um, well-organized, and the racing's not too hard. You know, most stages are 120 to 140 Ks. So the racing's not too intense, and everyone kind of – comes out of the good kind of positive feeling for the rest of the racing season. I think another thing that's interesting about this race is that it has pioneered the cloverleaf model that everyone talks about now as a way to cut down on costs, cut down on transfers. And that is basically you have your start town and then the stages all kind of start in that one location and then go out from there. Riders come back there at night. So you're able to stay in one hotel and avoid the town to town transfers that make uh these bike races kind of a pain in the butt and a bit of a traveling circus you know what's it like to be part of that in in the cloverleaf model with the tour down under yeah that's that's a good point I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about this race because all the riders and all the team staff and even the journalists we all stay in the same hotel so right there you have already a great bar scene <laughs> every night with all the sport directors hanging out, having a few beers and lots of good gossip going around. But right in front of the hotel, they have kind of this large uh, town square they convert into a big kind of party zone for the race. Half of it is kind of where the, the mechanics keep all the, the bikes and the team staff have all their equipment there. But the other half of the square, they have a big expo area. They have an outdoor kind of bars set up and coffee shops. And they have a, a big concert there every couple of nights. So it's a pretty cool scene. So even when the race is not in Adelaide itself, because it kind of goes out, like you said, club loose around, people can still kind of hang around and get this nice vibe. And it's really kind of, a, like you suggested, like a model where people could bring this, perhaps there's even discussions of maybe bringing it to like some of the Grand Tours where instead of having an everyday leapfrogging, you know, could go into a part of France and really sell that and have three or four or five stages really kind of from the same town. So it's it's kind of this modern take on what a stage race could look like, and we'll see if some of the other stage races down the road uh, adopt it. Man, I'd like that. You keep us from having to go to the Buffalo Grill on those lonely nights where the stage goes long, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So before we get into the actual racing, you know, this is the first race of the year, and everyone is meeting back up after a few weeks or months off. What were people talking about at this year's race? I got to imagine that, you know, things like Froome, Sagan, what the heck is going on with the adverse analytical? You know, what, what were people talking about? Yeah, I think the, the real buzz was really was Froome. There was a real kind of undercurrent of uh, just kind of frustration, I think, to a lot of people that I was talking to kind of, you know, you have the conversation with the tape recorder on and you turn it off and you kind of just keep, keep talking sometimes. A lot of people were just kind of frustrated that, it makes the sport look bad. It makes uh, people think the general public, you know, the headline back front page cycling is on the front page again for all the wrong reasons. And there's a sense that the sport has made some real uh, steps forward in the right direction. But this is kind of like a blemish on that progress. 
and people are frustrated at perhaps even the idea that that Froome might race during this process as it plays out. And, and uh, I know all the all the people uh, that are involved with race organizers or some other race organizers down there. They said, and La Partiente made a, a visit as well. And the feeling was, man, that's the last thing cycling needs is like this big circus that's going to happen when, you know, Froome rocks up to race at Torino Adriatico or the Junior Italia and his case remains unresolved. You know, that's just going to be a media circus and everyone knows it and no one wants to see that. Did you do what I did and pose them with the speculation question, the what do you think actually happened question? Are people willing to go there yet? Yeah, I mean, people, I mean. People have all different kinds of ideas. I think most people actually that I was talking to kind of gave Froome the benefit of a doubt. I think Froome, uh, despite what a lot of people in the general public seem to think about him, if you read the forums, I think a lot of his competitors actually respect Chris Froome a lot. And they think that, uh, you know, they don't believe that Froome is like, a, a, you know, taking gallons of EPO and doing all these uh, terrible things that sometimes have been thrust upon him. So I think a lot of his competitors, are, uh, you know, are kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt. But they're more frustrated, I think, in these larger issues, how it reflects on the sport. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with it. When I wrote that column last week asking people, you know, like, full disclosure, I hope that Froome is able to prove his innocence. I am a fan of the man and a fan of the rider, and I'm with these people that you spoke with. It would be bad for the sport. I think everyone is rooting for Froome in this situation. It's just a, you know, when when you look at the situation and ask yourself, well, what's the most the simplest explanation? You know, it might not be in line with what Froome and Sky are saying. Um, but I, I agree, you know, you don't want to see another 2011 where uh, Contador is allowed to race the Giro, wins it by like nine minutes, and then all of a sudden it gets taken away. That's just, that's a huge blow to the credibility. Yeah, that's what everyone doesn't want to see happen again. I mean, La Partant showed up the last couple of days, and he actually had some interesting things to say. I mean, and he, he, he's coming across as a UCI president who is not afraid to speak his mind. I mean, that's kind of a big contrast to Cookson, whom we come in and kind of dance around the issue sometimes or suggest that we have a meeting or we have a discussion or we have a panel or we have a you know, committee look at the things. Whereas La Pratiette was coming out and just saying, you know, I don't want, you know, I would like that Chris Froome not race. He also clearly stated that, of course, the rules allow him to race. But La Pratiette was saying very clearly, it's like the best thing for cycling is for Chris Froome to step aside do the right thing for the sport, let his, let his case play out. And if he's cleared, great, you're welcome back. And if not, don't be in the middle of the racing schedule if you do come down with some sort of sanction or, or disqualification. And uh, La Partiente, also the impression I got of, of, you know, he's very well versed in what makes the sport tick. You know, he's been a, he, he, in fact, he was the chief commissaire back in the day at the Tour Down Under, like 15 years ago. And he's been the president of the French Cycling Federation. So I think a lot of people who, who really had a first chance really to talk to La Partiente down there the last couple of days came, came away pretty impressed with the new president. You know, one thing that uh, surprised me with what La Partiente had to say was about Lance Armstrong. You know, uh, famously, the uh, Flanders Classics organizers of the Tour of Flanders have welcomed Lance to be sort of an official guest of the race this year. And La Partiente 
made a public comment saying that he will not go to the Tour of Flanders because of this, and he doesn't think that Flanders Classics should have Lance there. What was uh, the response for people in the scene for La Partienne and, and his hard line against Lance? Yeah, I think La Partienne uh, kind of revealed what kind of uh, you know character he kind of kind of stance he's going to take on these kinds of issues because he let it be known that he had contacted the organizer of Flanders Classics um, that Lance in no way could be associated with any official activity involved with the race. And I think the race organizer kind of retreated on that point. I wasn't quite sure. It wasn't quite clear if Lance was going to be attending only some sort of like function on a Thursday or Friday night before the race, or if he was going to be part of the race in some sort of function on the actual race day. And La Pratiat drew a very clear line in the sand there saying, no, 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 no. He cannot take partake in any official role with the race, um, including like some sort of official credential or any sort of official guest of the race. So Lance might be there in person. He might attend this event. I think it's a fundraiser or some sort of a, well, a paid event on, on the Friday night before the race. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Lance, everybody has their opinion on Lance of one extreme or the other. Some people seem to agree that Lance has paid his dues and, you know, he should be allowed back to the race just like uh, Reese or Varank or all these other guys that are still involved uh, in the sport. But I guess the big difference there is, uh, you know, Lance has received an official sanction where those other guys have not. I wonder if that sanction governs participation in the cyclosportive day before, because, man, you know, going out there doing the Flanders cyclosportive with like 20,000 other riders riding around on the cobblestones, getting bumped by people. Um, I just, I got to figure that Lance would love to do something like that. I don't know if Big Bad Lapartienne is going to come down on him and say, you know, uh, Lance, no sportive for you. <laughs> the sportive did not come up, so maybe I have to make another phone call. <laughs> so let's get on to the racing. You know, this has traditionally been a sprinter's battle at the Tour Down Under. You know, a few years back, they added the Uldwilenga Hill um, this year, Peter Sagan, Ella Viviani, Caleb Ewan, uh, Greipel, all winning stages. So it seems like the sprinters are fairly even at this point in the season. You know, Sagan hadn't won a stage here before. What uh, what what did it mean for that guy to come away with a win? Yeah, I think uh, I think Sagan wanted to kind of show something. I mean, not that he has to prove anything. But I think he, he he's coming into the season. You get the feeling it's coming in the season, you know, looking pretty good, feeling pretty uh, motivated. I think for the spring classics block. I mean, this year they've divided up Sagan's calendar kind of in traditional mode. You know, spring classics, tour, world championships, and they're really coming into uh, to this spring classics campaign, really focused on getting at least one monument victory of the three that he's going to race San Remo. Flanders and Robay and Sagan you know he's looking better I was, had an interview with his coach Pachi Vila and he said Sagan's numbers are looking sharp that he's a little bit you know for this time of year he's in probably better shape than he was last year because last year he had you know a later worlds a later kind of off season he came into the tour down under a little bit uh, you know with not quite as much uh, miles in his legs and, uh, you know, Sagan had a baby uh, over this past year, so he's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say he's uh, a 
a grown up yet, but he's, uh, <laughs> you know, he looks, he looks, he looks a little bit more like he's uh, really wants to go out there and uh, get a big win or two this spring. He had a baby and he got a tattoo. In fact, a huge tattoo. We saw photos of that on social media. It appears to be a picture of the Joker from the Batman movies with Sagan's face on it, smiling. That says, and it says, "Why so serious?" On it. Look, I love Peter Sagan. I love the races he wins, the style he brings, and the panache. But I saw this tattoo, and I was like, "No, thank you." This is a hideous tattoo. Were people talking about the ink, the, the Sagan tat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Sagan tat was definitely a point of discussion. Uh, you know, that's Sagan. That's how he rolls, man. He does. He does not like to take life too seriously, and. Uh, I was trying to, you know, I guess that came out of some sort of bet between some of the guys on the team, and and they shaved uh, Pachi Vila's head over over some uh, bet as well. So I guess uh, Sagan said he'd get a tattoo, and he, I guess he did it Sagan's way, and he, he made it a big one. Well, kudos to him for living up to the bet. Um, so the race comes down to this uh, sprint up Old Wollonga, which we've seen the last few editions, and I think everyone assumed that Richie Port was going to ride away with it like he did last year, and he took the stage win, but was tied on GC, which meant Daryl Impey, South African, was the surprise winner. You know, what does it mean to Daryl Impey to win this race? How was he able to win? What do we make of Daryl Impey, Tour Down Under winner? Yeah, he was he was uh, over the moon to win this race because Impey said it was just probably the biggest thing he's done since he had the, the yellow jersey in the Tour de France a couple of years ago. MB was kind of their dark horse, their smoky, as the Aussies like to call it, coming into this uh, into this race because they really hadn't had a, a clear GC rider because they left, you know, Esteban Chavez and the Yates brothers didn't come. So no one was really looking to uh, the Green Edge franchise really to win this thing. But this thing always comes down to a fight between BMC and Green Edge over the last six, seven years because... You know, it's either Richie Poit, Simon Garrens battling it out. And everyone thought it was going to be Caleb Ewan for the sprints. And it turned out uh, that Daryl Impey, you know, really took it to uh, BMC and nipped him on uh, time bonuses. That's how usually how this race is won is on time bonuses are a very important factor in, in this kind of stage race format. Whereas last year, Richie Port was on this superb form, just blew the wheels off everyone up uh, Walunga Road. And... Uh, uh, this year, Richie, you know, I mean, he pulled off to celebrate at the line. You know, that might have cost him the win. He kind of pulled up before crossing the line. Uh, but I don't think Richie was too – I mean, he was happy to win again. It was his fifth time in a row up Wollonga Hill. So he was happy to get the to get that in his pocket. I mean, the most important thing for Port was just simply to race again. He hadn't raced a stage race since he abandoned the tour last year. So he was happy just – and the team was very happy to see Richie performing at a good level because until you race again, you really don't know. The other storyline to come out was the heat. So we were uh, monitoring Twitter and would see these photos of guys like frolicking in the ocean after the stage and a lot of tweets coming out about how hot it was and 100 degrees, 110 degrees. And, you know, the UCI did shorten some sort of the race shortened a few stages. I'm curious what conversation was like about the action that was taken to shorten some of these stages and about just the UCI's extreme weather protocol and how it was brought to bear at this race in general. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very warm. And in fact, that, that hot stage, stage three to Victor Harbor, that's the one they, they reduced by. There was three circuits and they chopped off two of them. So it was uh, they whacked down on 
about 25 k's off off the uh, final distance of that stage, following this this protocol. Uh, I was actually in the, the Katusha team car that day, and man, it was hot. It was it was hot. On the road temperature it was 46 degrees, and I think that's maybe you know, close to 115 degrees Fahrenheit. And you know they were not riding fast that day. No one was really in a hurry to get to the finish line, and riders were saying that uh, that was they were at their limit in terms of what's considered safe. Then the next day stage, they started it earlier, so to kind of catch a little bit cooler temperature in the in the morning. You know the thing is about Australia; it's going to be hot, and it was very hot that one day, stage three. They did what they had to do. They also canceled their kind of a public ride that next day when they had five thousand weekenders. You know, weekend warriors doing some public ride. They canceled that out of safety issues for the, uh, you know, you don't want these people just dropping dead. <laughs> you know, the weekend warriors going out there. But I think, you know, there were some grumbles. I mean, people were saying it's too hot. Then other people were saying, you know, come on, it's Australia. It's summertime. We know it's going to be hot. It's hot here every year. Uh, I think they, there was no major complaints because it did cool down the following days. It got into the mid-30s, which is, you know, the 90s. Still very warm. But there were some complaints definitely going around that it was too hot that day. But the race went on. Had it been as hot again the next day, I think there would have been more dramatic decisions taken. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there going forward a few points is first, you know, when we think of the extreme weather protocol being brought to bear, it's usually because of wind or rain or, you know, snow or some terrible cold inclement weather and like the Dolomites. And, um, you know, the other one is that this is going to be a problem from here on out for that race. Um, it's always in the summer in Australia. The summer in Australia is always hot. So you do wonder if the race will consider permanent changes like really early start times or shortened stages or just, you know, tweaks here and there to accommodate for the heat going forward. I, I'm curious if that was something that was talked about at all, like permanently changing this race. Yeah, I think that, I think that's in the on, in the cards uh, as part of their backup plans too. I think they can just roll some of these starts a little bit earlier. Uh, it's only four hours of racing anyway, so if you did start the race two hours earlier, uh, you know it does take a couple hours in the morning to really get hot. I mean, by eleven o'clock, it's pretty hot down there. So in theory, they could start a race hours earlier if they had to just to get in the cooler racing in the morning but i think the most important thing the takeaway there really is they have the the weather protocol in play was discussed there was a clear discussion before the race they made a decision based on the information they had and and that's what the most important thing is is that 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 whole procedure is is now a firm part of any discussion before these you know extreme conditions mm. last thing for you a hoodie you know when i think about this race the images that pop into my mind are of various pro cyclists and cycling dignitaries carrying exotic fauna, namely like baby cute kangaroos and wallabies and whatever. Did you get to hold a baby kangaroo hoodie? <laughs> I, in fact, I did. That was a uh, requirement from the home front. I had to get the the photo of myself with the little little kangaroo. I tell you what, those things are uh, docile when they're little like that. But you see those things; they got some big claws on them, and the big the big old kickers on the back. You don't want to mess with a grown up kangaroo. I tell you that. Yeah, that's right. Well, hopefully, you will not be encountering any grown up kangaroos on the roads in Spain where you will no doubtably be riding your bike around at like 4 a.m. because you're so jet-lagged for the next few weeks. 
<laughs> That's right. You have to worry more about uh, bulls around here. <laughs> All right, Hoodie. Well, hey, thanks so much. Go get yourself a uh, well-earned rest, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, good stuff. Thanks. All right, guys, uh, before we finish it up this week, we have to get to some off the fronts, off the backs. That's what's hot and not in the world of cycling, of course. Um, so, Spencer, I'm looking at you. What, what's off the front this week? I think the Tour Down Under is really way off the front. And it, that's partly due to the fact that, you know, it's fun to watch the race and get us, get us started on the season. But more importantly, they dis- decided that they would pay out equally to the women's Tour Down mm. Under as well as the men's. So um, I guess they sort of decided that last minute and now they're going to, I guess, put the checks in the mail, ladies. Yeah. So uh, yeah, good, for, good for Tour Down Under for paying out equally, which I think is one of the first times a bike race has ever done that, if not mm-hmm. the first, at least in the road racing scene. And then off the back, I think, has to be Matthew Vanderpool's pit crew mm. for not doing a good enough job of waving him in or something. I don't know that maybe they need to like write a little reminder on his handlebar or do something. I mean, the guy's got enough on his mind already. He needs, he needs a little help remembering <laughs> where he needs to go to get his bike. You know, let's, let's keep it simple for him. Chris, off the front, off the back? Off the front. I got to say, I'm really excited about uh, Gaviria. He's down in Argentina. Mm. He's already winning. I think a lot of expectation is on this kid's shoulders, this 23-year-old kid's shoulders, and I think he's going to live up to those expectations, deal with the pressure really well, and I can't wait to see what he can do because I think he could uh, be Sagan's real future rival. Ooh. Honorable mention, Andre Greipel, still yeah. winning stages. I know, two wins at Down, down Under. Under. Amazing. Done. Yeah. Comes off comes off the offseason and is already hot. Um, not hot would probably be, this is going to maybe seem a little bit weird, but I just want to see this beautiful duel materialize one mm. of these days. I want Wout van Aert to pick it up a notch or two if he needs to. I don't know how he's going to do it. He goes away. Goes to, he goes to training camps he, with Stephen Hyde. I mean, what more do you need? He comes out and he just can't, he still can't beat Vanderbilt. I think he needs two notches, maybe three. Pigeon yeah. pie. Yeah. Pigeon pie. Many notches. From, from his rival's dad. <laughs> I, I'm with you, man. I want that beautiful duel to materialize. You wrote that piece at the onset of the season. It was great. And just, come on, Woot. 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 Yeah, man. Um, I, there's so much to be off the front about right now. There's uh, the U.S. track program, which had mm. another great World Cup. Yep. Um, yeah, there's what's going on at the Vuelta San Juan. I'd say, though, off the front for me is low countries and their elite cyclocross teams for worlds. Because, like, so the Belgian team is so strong that they, like, left off Kevin Powell's. Like, it's like, hey, Kevin, sorry, you've been on the podium at Worlds so many different times. Yeah, like five out of seven, I think, the last yeah. times yeah. he's been at uh, World yeah, Championships. He's guaranteed to get a bronze. Yeah, and they're just like, nah. <laughs> 
Not good enough. Th- not good enough this year. And with the Dutch, they left off Thalita de Jong, who was a world, world champion. champion. And they're just like, ah, sorry, you like weren't strong enough this year. And she didn't race that much this right. year. But that's like talk about an embarrassment of riches to be able to tell like a world champion from two years ago, like, yeah, better luck next year. You know, maybe like uh, hang out with the selection committee or something. Maybe maybe like train more or something. Um, off the back. Man, it's like Argentinian steaks or something like that. Argentinian food. Whatever happened to poor Vincenzo Nibali? Oh, right. He got, yeah. Because Mm. he got that stomach bug and is out of the Vuelta San Juan, which is a bummer because we have Gregory Brown down there. I was looking to some great, for some great Nibali content. Um, of him getting fired up about Froome, talking about his season goals, and then also just like dropping people. And we're deprived of that because, I don't know, like the tacos weren't fresh or something. Yeah, that's a long way to travel to uh, have the old rooster hit you. Yeah, it's brutal. And let's let's all remember, too, Dane Cash, our uh, reporter who just came on board, he got dysentery down there oh. at the at the at the Tour de San Luis a few years ago. So it's no joke. It's it's a, it's a risky uh, proposition. And he was at like stage one. So yeah, Chris, like like you said, the ratio of time traveled to time you're in the race totally lopsided. I remember having yeah. that conversation one time. Jeremy Horkin Gabelski. He flew to the Peter Meritzburg World Cup in South Africa and snapped his chain like the third pedal stroke mm. off the line, Ooh. and his race was over. And he was just like. That was the most lopsided, in a bad way, travel time to race time, uh, maybe in the history of bike racing. Maybe try putting on a new chain before a big race (laughs) next time. Ouch. Uh, Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VeloNews podcast are those of the individual and as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Mm-hmm.